1: Last Saturday was a very important date in the horticultural calendar, World Naked Gardening Day. Plant enthusiasts around the world celebrated the human body and nature by tending to their gardens in the buff. Two gardeners who bared all were presenter Michael Perry, also known as Mr. Plant Geek, and Kirsty Ward, who runs the hugely popular Instagram and blog, My Little Allotment.
2: I think for me, World Naked Gardening Day is something that's really fun. It's quite liberating.
3: I actually got involved for charity about six years ago. We were raising money for Perennial, which is the Royal Gardeners Benevolent Society. And I think the first thing we did was a cheeky photo shoot at the Kensington Roof Gardens down in London.
2: I have issues with my body and my appearance, as, you know, everyone does, but this is just a time to sort of go outside and celebrate and and just forget things a little bit and not worry. And I think that's what gardening on a whole is, you know, for me, is to, you know, forget all those worries and, and be happy, so why not celebrate it by doing something so fun and getting involved with the community
3: yeah i mean you have to do it as legally as possible (laughs) and as safely as possible so obviously we're avoiding brambles roses but there's plants that have soft edges that are actually more pleasurable to be around like stachys lamb's ears or of course you might need a fig leaf or a paulonia big giant leaf as well whatever shape or size you are it's okay and I believe that a lot of followers that were getting involved with world naked gardening day were finding it almost cathartic you know this is kind of this is me and so it's nice to not only have risen this money for charity but help people in their own acceptance
1: social media was awash with the gardening community embracing their love for all things natural ferns fig leaves fruits of all kinds were useful props and pictures this all sounded slightly uncomfortable to me so i stuck to my warm cozy gardening clothes There's always next year i suppose right anyway on with the show i'm guy barter and welcome to the rhs gardening podcast does your garden inspire you? For me it's all about nature, the course of the seasons, wildlife. My apples are in flower, little fruits are forming. It's the way nature goes on in these times. It's very reassuring. The variety, the colours, the scents in our garden spaces encourage creativity from helping us get inventive in the kitchen to connecting us with nature. In today's podcast, we're digging into how gardens help us think and live in experimental and fun ways. For centuries, plants and gardens have been a source of inspiration for artists around the world. I'm thinking Van Gogh's sunflowers, exquisite Far Eastern flower portraits, Georgia O'Keeffe's explosion of colourful flowers or more recently, David Hockney's lockdown paintings of his garden in Normandy. But pictures of plants are not only beautiful, but can be really useful. This is something Dr Chris Furrigood often tells his students at the University of Oxford. Chris is the Deputy Director of Oxford's Botanic Garden and Arboretum, but he's also an author and illustrator with an unusual focus.
4: So I've always illustrated plants and actually other wildlife as well. I used to paint sea creatures a lot when when I was small and actually I've done it ever since I can remember. So when I was a child, I had a bedroom windowsill that was absolutely festooned with plants. It was a veritable jungle in my bedroom and I had uh, fish tanks crammed with pitcher plants and orchids and and things growing up the curtain poles, my my poor parents, I tell you. And um, I remember sitting on my bedroom floor with a a pad of paper, just sort of doodling and, and drawing all of the plants that I grew on my windowsill and really that's a passion that I've taken with me ever since because now as a botanist I get to travel and see plants in beautiful places around the world and I love nothing more than to come back from a botanical adventure and then conjure up some of the uh, the magic that I've seen on canvas. botanists all have our favorite plants and we're always drawn to certain things pitcher plants are a real favorite of mine i also really love parasitic plants the ones that are devoid of chlorophyll so some of these really creepy looking plants don't produce functional leaves because they steal all of their nutrients from other plants and some of them are really really beautiful there are these plants called broomrapes or orobanki is their proper name and they siphon off sap water and and nutrients um, from the roots of other plants and some people describe them as looking like withered orchids which I think is really unfair because they're actually the the most beautiful plants they're really really delicate and they've got these wonderful colors um, that you wouldn't expect because none of them are green and and, um, I love to paint those Botanical illustration is something that's always been important. So long before we had photography, it was a way in which we could capture the important details and the botanical aspects of plants that were crucial in naming new species. And today, even though we have photography, which of course is very useful, it's still important to be able to capture the various aspects of the plant and it's something that is at the same time both beautiful but also scientifically accurate and and important. In many ways it's as important now as it ever was. The first thing I would suggest to someone who wanted to start doing botanical illustration is really not to be too daunted by it. So watercolour is often a preferred medium because it's very good for capturing precise details And so my recommendation would be to start with the right paper. So you can't just use watercolour on any old paper, generally, because it would disintegrate. So there are particular types of paper you can use, for example, a hot-pressed paper, which is able to absorb lots of water in consecutive layers. The next thing I would suggest is to wet the area of the page which might not seem intuitive before you add the watercolor because if you add watercolor straight to a dry page it doesn't sit very well but if you wet the area that you're going to paint first the color just sort of floods in in this beautiful cloud of color and it sits really really smoothly the next tip i would give is always make sure that your first layer has dried before you put the next layer on It's a mistake that we've all made along the way, but if you try to put another layer of paint on before the first one's dry, you end up with an absolute mess and you can really ruin your painting. And then when you've added these consecutive series of layers of colour, because botanical illustration is all about adding these layers, eventually you come to the really fun part, well, I think it is, which is where you get to add the details and you can sort of neaten up all those um, washes and layers that you've put on. And that's where you really add the life to the plant. If you've never picked up a pen or a paintbrush before and you have a garden and you're tempted to start, my advice would be to just try, because I know a lot of people who were surprised at their own ability, particularly with pen and ink and watercolour. Not technically too difficult. There are other paints that that require a lot of time and practice, oil paints, for example. But with watercolour, there really is a process involved. And if you follow certain steps, you really can achieve great results, so I would recommend trying and and seeing how you get on. I think all botanical artists are inspired by the work of others. I remember when I was a child visiting the Marianne North Gallery in Kew and I was Captivated by that, not so much because of the technical ability shown in the artwork, and by the way, she was an early botanical explorer. That said, there's something about those paintings that really capture the essence of the environment in which she travelled, the certain qualities of of the plants and how they were growing. And also, I think those paintings seen together as as a collective, are greater than the sum of their parts, really.
1: Thanks, Chris. And at the RHS, we have a fantastic archive bursting with beautiful botanical illustrations. Here's our head of libraries and exhibitions, Fiona Davison, to tell us more.
5: The RHS has had a collection of botanical illustrations pretty much since it was founded in 1804. As Dr. Chris touched on, they needed it for the identification of plants because if you think about it before photography, if you wanted to be very specific about the plant you were talking about, the plant you were studying, words aren't really a great way of describing a plant. It's really hard. A red plant, what do you mean red? Is it an orangey red, a purpley red? So a visual representation of a plant is critical. There's a precision and a crispness. It's not about prettiness for prettiness' sake, although they often are very, very beautiful. And so the RHS would employ the best botanical artists of the day to paint the precise variety of plants that at any given time that the society was interested in. So over time, we've built up a fantastic collection. We've now got 30,000 botanical illustrations within the Lindley Library. And over time, it's developed from being a purely scientific and practical tool into also an art collection to enjoy. Within the collection, there are some really big names as well in terms of the who's who of botanical illustration. So we have paintings by Redoute, we have paintings by some of the great female botanical illustrators, because one of the interesting things about botanical illustration is it was a profession that was open to women painting was one of the ladylike accomplishments that young women were taught the other thing is botany was one of the sciences that was felt to be respectable enough for a middle-class lady to do largely because people were slow to realize that flowers had sex um and so it was it was felt safe for women rather than these you know studying animals and who knew what they got up to So we have people like the magnificently named Augusta Withers, who was really great at uh, painting fruit in particular and and taught Queen Victoria how to paint flowers. Normally, we'll be doing exhibitions at the Lindley Library, which are free and on Monday to Friday normally. While we're in lockdown, we're tweeting very regularly on our Twitter account at RHS Libraries. And regularly, we'll tweet really lovely pictures because we've digitised a lot of our collection. We're really hopeful that soon we'll be launching online exhibitions. One of the joys of my job is I can kind of roam into the uh, stores when I feel like it. It's really hard to pick a favourite out of a collection of 30,000 and if I'm in the mood to look at something very romantic and lush, I can look at a Redute painting where he's presenting the flowers with beautiful dewdrops on and everything's just in full blue. I think I do like Augusta Withers a lot. She really captures the translucency of lots of fruits and you could pick the peaches off the page when she paints them. So if you, if you force me, Augusta with us.
1: A great insight into our archives from Fiona there. Now our first guest, Chris, isn't the only one with a love for bloodthirsty plants. Here's another gardener with a love for the carnivorous type. Hello, I'm
2: George Chassel and I'm the RHS Young Ambassador.
1: Let's hear about his infatuation with tropical pitcher plants, nepenthes.
2: They also call it a monkey cup. It's got quite long leaves and on each leaf is a sort of cup and it's got a little sort of leaf on top of it to stop water getting in. And they're just really Alice in Wonderland. They're really crazy. Inside the cup there's digestive enzymes and basically around the lid it secretes this sort of sugary liquid and things like flies and even mice get attracted to them. Then they drink this solution and it sends them a bit drunk and disorientated. Then they slip on the lid, fall into the liquid and get digested. First time I came across the nepenthes was at RHS Wisley in the greenhouses there. I remember someone taking us around and I specifically remember them saying that sometimes they find, like, my skeletons in the Nepenthes and that just sort of captured my imagination right away. The fact that a plant can literally eat a mouse, that's just, you know, crazy. <laughs> Nepenthes, they're very diverse plants. They can go from quite a small cup to um, ones that can pretty much engulf a rat, really. They've various colours. They can go from sort of a very deep, dark red to a sort of a lightish green. It's just a total reversal in it. Of you, you always think that plants are at the bottom of the food chain, but whereas in fact, since you know, like barnacles and things, you, they can eat rats and things. It's just mental. <laughs> I think. As regards to plants, there's this stereotype that they're quite boring. Whereas if they're so well adapted to survival, and they're so different and diverse, it's it's just a really good example. Of the Nepenthes just makes me feel that fossils are full of wonder. Really, just it's very hard to get into your head that it's an actual plant, that it's not you know somebody's made this. It's literally evolved like that, and it's just a really crazy thing to look at, and um, makes you feel sort of in admiration for the plant, really, that, you know, this plant has evolved that way and it's learned how to survive in these harsh environments. Whenever I'm at, you know, in the RHS shows or anything, I really like going over to the displays. So I think it's great to see them in the natural environment. It's, you know, it's always nice seeing it in a little pot somewhere, but, you know, to see it hanging off a tree with um, air plants and moss around it, it's always something beautiful. And yeah, I think I'll always have an admiration for him.
1: Having carnivorous plants at home is just one way to be really creative in what you grow. Just keep your fingers away. Another way to grow outside of the box is by using our kitchen cupboards. You'd be surprised at how much you can get just from the seeds and old veg you've forgotten about. One of the seeds you often find in the store cupboard are mustard seeds. These are a member of the cabbage family or brassicas. They can be sown to produce little things called mini greens, which are essentially the seedlings like mustard and cress that you snip off of your scissors and sprinkle over your salads. Cabbage family seeds last for seven years or even more, nine years in some cases, so you have an excellent chance of good results when sowing mustard seeds. I think it's great fun to impress my friends with tricks like this, so I was keen to learn more. To help me, I spoke to Lee Hunt, our Principal Horticultural Advisor.
6: It's interesting when you get looking in the cupboard, along with your kind of herbs and spices, there is a lot of things potentially that you could have a go at growing. And I'm really looking for whole seeds rather than crushed or ground spices here. So things that are automatically coming to my mind are things like caraway and coriander seeds as well because at least to start with they're whole and I think often it then depends about have we actually had these in the cupboard for a very long time you know what it's like when you open the jar and there is absolutely no smell at all and you're kind of thinking when the smell's gone are they actually going to be viable to begin with and I think really there's only one way if you've got those whole type seeds is to get them out and try and grow them because let's face it they'll either grow or they won't (laughs) and there's only one way to find that out really we can do that very simply so we could often just put them on some damp tissue to see if they start to germinate after a few days to a week you should start to see the seed coat splitting and a little embryonic shoot and root heading out through the bottom but equally if we've got a bit of potting compost we could sow into that.
1: If people want to grow potatoes and they can't get hold of seed potatoes because the season's almost over now do you think we could get a crop from a supermarket, Spud?
6: For sure, it's something I've done in the dim and distant past myself. And obviously, why we try and get proper potatoes that are grown as seed potatoes is they come, they are free of disease. But most potatoes that we'll get will certainly grow and produce a decent crop. I think the thing is, it's a bit more of an unknown quantity in terms of how they're going to grow. So it really is stick them in, keep them well watered. And then you're going to have to watch more of the signs. So their growth, we might not know whether they're going to be a good main crop or a salad potato. So keep watching for them to be in good growth. But from recollection, you'll certainly get some useful
1: crop out of the potatoes that you get out of the drawer. What do you reckon on the seeds inside tomatoes? Do you think they'd be viable? The tomato by its very nature is a ripe
6: fruit so it should stand a pretty good chance of producing plants and therefore potentially producing fruit what we're getting is seedlings of the variety that supermarkets have chosen and they're often grown in glass houses so it's possible that the variety that we're getting is going to need quite a lot of shelter outdoors and also because a pollinated plant is going to be variable from its parents. So it might be variable in its growth habit and it might be variable in its quality of actually surviving and and fruiting for us. But definitely worth having a go. And, you know, if you grow quite a few seedlings from that one tomato, it can be interesting just to see how variable they are. They will grow and, and need a lot of support. So be prepared. They might not be as controllable as normal tomatoes.
1: I'm curious about dried chilies and dried tomatoes. I've got a feeling the seeds from the dried chilies would germinate, but not the tomatoes. So that's something else I'm going to try.
6: I have a suspicion you're right because I've seen the dried chilies in Italy and literally they're harvesting them they're often tying them into bunches and they're putting them in the sun to dry and that seems a very natural process of drying them off quite quickly but without high heat in in terms of if you put them in an oven then that would definitely kill the seed but it's more high natural heat. So that sounds like it should give seed that would work, certainly from things like the chillies. The tomatoes always always shriveled up and wizened and I'm assuming because they have a lot more moisture around them that stands quite a lot of chance of causing problems we see sometimes don't we with tomatoes that they they will germinate inside the fruit so you do wonder whether you'll get seed that's already not in good condition before it was dried as well
1: tomato seed is well known to be extremely robust as the immense crops grown on sewage farms will attest
6: and in terms of the chilli, if you want something a little bit more spicy in your life, the way they certainly sold those dry chilies in Naples was to shout down the street while pointing at the bags, gesturing to the tourists, Viagra, Viagra. And it was reckoned that uh, chilies were rather good for your
1: love life as well. seeds that people seem to be growing a lot of at the moment the seeds from squashes they taking squashes from the supermarket and gathering the seeds do you think that produces a fruit that's safe to eat
6: i think you'll only know unfortunately when you get to a crop the way often you can tell is that if it has any bitterness that's a sign that you've got the toxins the curcubitans in profusion and that makes them it gives you a mild a mild to more severe stomach upset that's the only way really to tell for sure whether they have a a problem not the stomach upset but the, the bitter taste put them back don't eat them so generally speaking it's taste first get your taste tester involved and see what they say
1: have you been creative in your garden? Let us know. You can get in touch on social media. Just search for the RHS and use the hashtag RHS podcast. As always, rhs.org.uk slash podcast has more on everything you've heard today. Fiona Davison will be back next week. She'll be talking to landscape architect Sarah Eberly, who has a soft spot for a spiky tree.
5: It's got these wonderful bright green filigree leaves that come out in the early spring, followed by a pure white blossom. But behind all that are these huge thorns. So it's a bit of a dichotomy there between how it looks and actually how it talks to you when you grab hold of it. It really is quite a sharp plant.
1: Goodbye for now from me, Guy Barter.